Amen. Join me in prayer, please. Take three. Lord, sovereign God, holy is your name. You have done great things, Lord. Lord, be magnified by our praise, glorified by our worship. You are great. Holy Spirit, come, saturate our hearts. Lord, please bless the preaching of your word, and may we hear from your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. read the word of the Lord together. Luke 2, starting with verses 8 through 10. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. The word of the Lord. Amen. I am uh, assure you this morning, I am not trying to be one of those cool hip pastors who sits while they preach, but I'm going to sit while I preach. <laughs> I had a procedure on Monday and I really started thinking about it. It was like, I really don't want our church service to go viral for all the wrong reasons. So please bear with me. Um, so one of the things that we were looking at in that text was the joy that was announced when Jesus came. And um, so this is the third Sunday of Advent, and we are, we're looking at joy. It's not the first time we've looked at this, not the first time we've, we've preached on joy by any stretch, but, um, but it is something that we want to spend some time this morning. Um, and so before we do, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you in your mind to think about the definition of joy. What does joy mean? All right, this is so this is like a this is like a baseline. Right? You, you understand baselines, right? You, you you get a baseline for something. I've had a couple in a, and it can be in many different fields. Like I um so like Alzheimer's disease runs back in my family like four generations. And so years ago, I went and had one of those tests where they repeat all of these different colors and numbers and stuff and your your head is spinning 
and you're trying to figure out if you can say them in the right order. So we're trying to figure out a baseline so that later on, if something changes, we'll go back to that baseline and kind of know what we're talking about. I had a baseline totally different when I was in school. I was telling this story last week or two. Uh, When I was in speech communications, I had to start my class on phonetics by reading a chapter of something into a tape recorder. And then I would, from there, learn how to try to pronounce words properly, which made no sense to me because I pronounced everything properly. And then I you know, went back and listened to that first one, and I thought, I'm much more of a hick than I ever thought I was. So it was like a terrifying baseline for me. Um, but you know, the baseline is kind of where we, we make sure we know where we're starting from so we know where we end up and make sure that we know if there are things along the way that we need to learn. If there are things that we're thinking that it sounded right, but maybe it's not quite right. And so, so when I ask you, what is your definition of joy? <clears throat> what are the characteristics of joy? Where does joy come from? What does it look like? How, how does it work? How is it similar or dissimilar to, say, happiness or gladness? Is it the same thing? Are those synonyms? So get that in your head. I'll give you a second to think about it, and then we'll go on. That was about a second, so we're going to go on. But as we're going on, I do want you to think about what it means to be joyful. What does it mean to say, I believe in joy, I pursue joy, I want joy, I like joy, whatever that is. So we're not going to look at this comprehensively today. Um, this is not going to be something that we can look at all aspects of joy because it's a very broad subject, but we do want to look at it specifically in terms of Advent. That expectation, that waiting on Jesus to come again. And I'm not just talking about the season of Advent that we're in, but the state of Advent that we're in. The season is where we think back and we remember how with great anticipation Jesus came the first time, as was uh, prophesied for so long ago throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, we read. But we're now in a season of Advent. We're waiting for him to come again. We're waiting for him to come a final time, even as the world around us spins in chaos. How do we do this? How do we live with joy in the world in which we find ourselves? And so I'm going to, I'm going to try to I'm aware of the time, and we had a lot going on today, so I'm going to try to move through this quickly without not, you know, but still be able to do it justice. But we're going to look at the value of joy, for starters, and we're going to look then at the nature of the fight for joy, and then how the apostles experienced the victory through the weaponry of joy. And if that sounds weird to you, hang with me. I'm going to try to explain that. And then just a couple of strategies for the battle that we uh, are in, training our mind towards ultimate joy-filled reality. So when we look at the joy, the value of joy, and we start to unpack what is joy, the first thing we need to understand is joy is the second listed of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. So that right there tells us something about the nature of joy. That right there tells us its origin. And it also tells us kind of what we might have to do, uh, what we have to do with it 
uh, as far as attaining joy. But the one thing we realize as a fruit of the Spirit, it is something that is given by God for the benefit of the people, for the benefit of His people. It, it is then a part of the experience of being a Christian. The fruit of the Spirit is what grows within us as we grow in Jesus. And so joy is one of those things that is implanted and it is a part of our experience. It is a gift from God. It is closely related to gladness and happiness, but it's significantly different. There's a lot of difference in that. Because unlike happiness or glad, gladness, joy is not an emotion. So when I talk about, I feel joy. I feel joyful. That's awesome. That is a result of joy that you have, but the feeling itself is not joy. It can feel like it, but joy is a state of being. Joy is a state of being. I want you to get that and think about that. Roll that over in your head. And that's significant, and it's really important for us to understand um, in our waiting for Jesus. Now, what difference does it make? Well, because it is a state and not a feeling, we can experience joy even when we are not happy. I hope in your walk with Jesus that you've come to understand that. And maybe as you think back through some of the journey that you've been on and some of the experiences that you've had, you've kind of known the difference. Like when my parents died, I was not happy either time. And yet I experienced great, deep, abiding joy. If that makes sense. So it is something that will abide even when happiness is fleeting. Joy is also a gift that we can't lose. You go, wait a second, I don't feel joy. That, yeah, that's true. But if this is something that is implanted within us, if there is something within us that gives us joy, then there may be times where I don't recognize it, I don't feel it, I don't see it, but that doesn't mean that joy is gone, that that state of being is gone. So it is a gift of God and it cannot be lost, but it is also a disposition that we have to choose. So joy can't be taken away from us, but it can be left uncultivated. Like, I, I, like any of the other fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, those are things that the Spirit grows within me, but I need to cultivate those as I grow. I need to cultivate kindness. I need to cultivate forgiveness. I need to cultivate love. I need to cultivate joy. These are things that have to be be acted upon. It, it, maybe it can go uh, unutilized. And then further, here's kind of where we get into that aspect of, of how we sometimes feel, that we can let people or circumstances rob us of remembering that joy is mine. That's where it kind of gets circumstantial in how it is expressed, in how it feels. But I have to always cultivate that and remember that it is mine through the Holy Spirit of God. So choosing this disposition is often very hard. Circumstances make that extremely difficult sometimes. So it can be characterized as a spiritual fight. Sometimes we have to fight for joy. But that said, all that being taken into account, with these characteristics, joy is an extremely powerful weapon. It's a weapon in the war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
It's something that is ours, and, and we don't often recognize or think about it this way, but, but we need to understand the nature of the fight for joy and seeing joy as a part of the spiritual weaponry that we have against the foes that want to strip it all from us. And so we see the nature of the fight. So the initial question I ask is, how do we live with joy in a fallen world while we wait on Jesus' return? And when we think about that, the answer is in the question. So let me repeat the question. How do we live with joy in a fallen world while we wait on Jesus' return? And the way we do that is based on a fact that because Jesus is coming again, we can live in a state of joy just like Jesus did. Jesus lived in a state of joy at all times, even while being scourged, even while being spat upon, even while carrying his cross to Golgotha, even while hanging and suffering on the cross, Jesus still experienced joy. Now, how do I know that? Well, the Bible tells me so. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, tells us about Jesus as he was suffering through all that he had been going through. And so in this, we're going to see a goal, a power, and an example. So if we look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it, saw, it says, Therefore, since we have, now therefore, looks back to Hebrews chapter 11, which is what we call the hall of faith. All of those who trusted in the promise, they believed in the promise that was coming, even though they died without receiving the promise. It was their faith, which is a gift of God, that sustained them. And so here, he, the writer says, Therefore, since we have all those clouds of witnesses there surrounding us, do two things here. Lay aside every hindrance. Let us add every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. So everything, whether sin or not, that can hinder us for reaching the goal, reaching the prize that Paul talks about in Philippians, put it aside, lay it aside. And most specifically, the sin that easily ensnares us, easily tangles us up. And then he says, run with endurance the race that lies before us. Now, here's verse 2. Here's where we start to see uh, our goal, our power and example. If we look at the first part, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. That's the goal. The goal is whatever's happening, whatever's going on in our lives, to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who is the joy. And we see here our power here in just a second. But keeping our eyes on Jesus and the things in life, the circumstances around us, do everything to pull our eyes off of Jesus. To take our eyes off of Jesus and put it on anything else. And that becomes a snare or sin easily entangling us. So the goal then, keep your eyes focused on Jesus, who is the pioneer and author of our faith. So we have keeping our eyes on Jesus. That's the goal. The pioneer and the perfecter of our faith is our power. Holding on to what he has done. And what has he done? He has redeemed us. I keep my eyes on Jesus, remembering that he has redeemed me. And 
My power is keeping my eyes on Jesus, remembering that he is the perfecter of my faith. He has redeemed me and he's going to retrieve me. So he has already redeemed me in his sacrifice and he's coming again. And there is power in that. We remember that redemption was God's from the start, from the beginning all the way through completion. It has never been, nor will it ever be, about our ability, our power, our ability to hold on, our ability to succeed, to finish the race on our own. Jesus is our goal. Jesus is our power. And he's also our example. It says, For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down on the right hand of God. Now, our example then really is right here. Enduring the cross, despising the shame, and then sitting down at the right hand of the Father. <coughs> this is what he did. He, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of God. Speaking of sitting down, I can't do this sitting down. This is not in me. So if we go viral, I want the 10,000 bucks. Was that? <laughs> there you go. All right. So question one that I have for you is this. It says that for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. What is the joy? What, what is the joy that we're talking about? What's the focus? What's, his, what's in his mindset? What's going in his head? And I... All I can do at this point is look back in Scripture and know that all that was important to Jesus, and I would say that there's at least three things, at least three things that were, that were his joy, that were the focus of his joy. One, and these are not in any particular order, although I do believe these are probably the top three. Number one, accomplishing the Father's will. That was his joy, right? When he was in the, when he was in the, um, the Garden of Gethsemane, the cup itself did not bring Jesus joy, right? What did he say? Father, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. I believe in that moment, that was his joy. The joy of doing the Father's will. And because the joy was in doing the Father's will, the cup became his joy as well. So that's the way it is. The circumstances didn't shape Jesus, but Jesus focusing on what gave him joy changed the circumstances. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. So it was accomplishing his father's will, but it was also, I believe, redeeming a people for his own possession. That was a part of his mission. That brought glory to, Jesus, to, to the Father, but it also was Jesus' desire to redeem a people for himself. And finally, defeating death once and for all. Finally putting an end to that. What a joyous day. What a joyous mission that would have been for Jesus. So somebody could probably come up with some other things, but I think those are three that are primary for the joy of those things, accomplishing the Father's will, uh, redeeming a people through that, and, and then finally defeating death once and for all. Because of that, he kept his eye on the joy, which I think could really be summed up saying he kept his eye on the Father. He kept his eye on the will of the Father, and that brought him great joy. The second question was, was on this part right here where he says, despising the shame. He despised the shame. What does that mean? What does it mean that he despised the shame? I despise you, shame. 
I feel ashamed. I despise that. I despise that feeling. It doesn't sound quite right. I think that it means that it didn't affect him. He didn't let it affect him. He despised the, sh the shame. Everything that happened was shameful. Jesus, after all, having his beard plucked, that alone was very, very shameful. So every element of what Jesus went through, being spat upon, being accused, all of those things were incredibly shameful. And then after having been beaten beyond recognition, being stripped of your clothes and nailed to a cross, the most shameful of things that could happen, especially for a Jew, but it was a shameful thing for Romans to do that. And yet he didn't let it affect him. It didn't change him. It didn't refocus him. The joy was so intense and magnificent. The shame meant nothing and had no effect. The joy could not be taken away. And the joy was the weapon that Jesus used to overcome the shame and the pain and the defeat that should have been the cross. It should have been a big defeat, a big lose. And yet it was his victory. And because it was his victory, it was our victory. And so he despised the shame. He kept that joy out in front of him. His eyes were locked on the end and not the process, which tends to be our exact opposite, if you're like me at all. I tend to focus on the process and I lose sight of the end. I lose sight of the goal. And so I get bogged down in the process. I get discouraged in the process. I get sidetracked in the process. And, and a lot of things that aren't especially important, not as important as this, whether it's physical fitness or whatever. I just, I lose sight of the goal. I get tired of this and I quit. What's the point of this? This is ridiculous. Nothing's happening. Nothing's changing. I ain't doing it no more. I'm done. And never get to that goal. But Jesus had his eye on the goal and it made everything different about the process. This same joy is our weapon as we wait for his return. The same joy that Jesus has is our weapon. And I want to try to let you see this in John chapter 14 through 16. We're just going to pick a couple of verses, but there's a process that's going on. There's a communication that is going on uh, with Jesus and his disciples. And it's really important for us to see this as we kind of pinpoint what this weaponry would look like. If you look with me at John chapter 14, Verses 1 and 2, and I'm probably not keeping up. Oh, yeah, there we go. All right. I'm controlling this, and that's that. use that term loosely. Um, John chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Jesus said to his disciples, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in me. Believe also in God. So there's that statement, which is a command. It's an instruction. Don't let your heart be troubled. The fact is he's got to give us something so that that, that can happen. I can't just go, oh, okay. I am no longer troubled, not a problem whatsoever. But in 18, uh, no, 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 I'm sorry. Here's the second verse. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to, I would not have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you, right? So there he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Here's why. I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And in my father's house, there are many rooms. So there is a, a reason for joy. Jesus promised he would get us. And in verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. Being an orphan is tough. And when you think about being left absolutely alone, and Jesus is saying, I'm going away. 
But he says, I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back for you. I will not leave you alone. So if Jesus promised to come for us and nothing can prevent that, that generates joy. So we're well on our way to being able to understand how that becomes an, an, a weapon against things like hopelessness, things like abandonment, things like losing salvation, all of those things. Jesus has said this, and it gets us on the road. In John chapter 14, verse 27 and 29, he says this, Peace I, live with, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give you as the world gives you. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. You've heard me tell you I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, what do you say? If you love me, you will rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I am. I've told you now before it happens so that when it does, you may believe. So Jesus promises to give peace through the Comforter, which is a source of joy. So we have this provision for joy in telling us and reminding us and assuring us that he's coming. Now he says there is a source of joy that is coming our way. And then in John chapter 15, he says, and this is the context uh, of the abiding in me passage, verses 1 through 8, like 15, 5, where he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. That's the concept of this abiding. That's the context. And so in verse 1 of chapter 15, he says, As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and I remain in His love. So that's what he says. Look, you remain in my love because I remain in the Father's love. And because of that, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love as I have kept my Father's. So there's this, there's this love relationship that he's establishing. There is this, this abiding love here. And then in verse 11, he says, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So I've told you this so that my joy may be in you. So remember, we talked about we can have the same joy that Jesus had, and this is the joy that held him on the cross. It was keeping his eye on that kind of joy that enabled him to be able to overcome everything that lay before him. And now he's saying, I'm telling you things, these things, that as you abide in me and I abide in the Father, you keep my commands, which he explains here largely is love one another. But I say this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete so that abiding in Jesus, walking daily with Jesus, walking in his love and keeping his commands leads to Jesus' joy in us, the same joy that helped him endure the cross and make our joy complete. John chapter 16, he said, in a little while, you will no longer see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. Skips down to verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, are you asking one another about what I said? In a little while, you will not see me. And again, in a little while, you will see me. Verse 20 says, truly, I tell you, you will, you will weep, but the world will rejoice. You will become sor- sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. He says, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because the joy that a person has been born into the world. So 
You also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will. Catch this. So he says, I will see you again. It's a definite thing. You, you will see me. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that away from you. There are times in our lives where that doesn't seem possible. Right? There are times when, when you kind of wonder, is the sorrow ever going to end? Is the pain I'm feeling ever going to end? Is the, is the fear I'm feeling ever going to end? And Jesus says here, you're going to have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. See, we have sorrow now in this world, in this time, all kinds of sorrow. But the sorrow will be turned to joy. Why? Because Jesus is coming again. And that joy is ours. Now, the apostles experienced that. Tell them I said, hey, the apostles experienced victory through this weaponry of joy. So if we kind of apply this to what we see in Scripture, we know that when the Spirit came upon the disciples, He changed them. They were very different people. He changed them from fear-filled screw-ups to joy-filled world changers. And you see this in how they responded to situations. This is how the apostles, which included Paul, battled against the enemy who also worked towards their, defo- their defeat. If you look with me in Acts chapter uh, 5, verse 40. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged. So this is when, this is early after this, the Holy Spirit had come upon them. Sanhedrin calls them in. They have them flogged, right? Flogging is not a fun thing, I'm told. Never been flogged, but I hear it's really, really bad. Uh, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. So when you think about the fact that they took this cat of nine tails, I don't know if it was exactly like the one that Jesus was beat with, but they wrap it across it and they pull it and it, it just does damage to the body. This was clearly something somewhat different, but they had them beaten severely. That is not joy producing in my book. That is not happiness producing in my book. And yet what we know is they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be uh, treated shamefully on behalf of the name. They rejoiced with scars all over them, with open wounds all over their body. They're walking out together, praising God out loud that they were counted worthy. I mean, these are the same guys that not long before that were running scared because they were going to be counted with Jesus. Now they're praising God that they're being counted with Jesus. That's a change, man. That's, that's joy. They're rejoicing in that moment. Peter would later write in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. He says, you're being guarded by God's power through faith. Right there, that alone, we could stop and we could unpack it for a long time. And we did when we went through 1 Peter. But he said, you are being guarded by God's power through faith. Through that belief, that understanding, that holding on to what is true, that keeping your eyes on Jesus for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He says here, you rejoice in this. What are you rejoicing in? Again, the fact that you have a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the coming of Jesus, at the second coming of Jesus, right? So he says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, 
you suffer grief in various trials. It's going to happen to you, right? This is Peter. Remember Peter in that whole process, denying Jesus three times and then being one of the most bold speakers uh, of all of them. And he says, you rejoice in this. If even if now for a short time you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which through perish, though perishing is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying you're keeping your eyes on the prize and it is even producing more joy in you because of the fact that when you suffer with your eyes on Jesus, it is developing in you this proven character of faith. So in a sense, he's saying you keep your eyes on the prize and not worry about the process. But now here he's saying you will see some change in the process that will encourage you. And it will remind you of what you have. It will remind you of what is yours in Jesus. And it will remind you what you're going to end up with that at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's going to result in praise and glory and honor. Mainly praise and honor and glory of Jesus. But we will also be glorified, which is where Paul on the same subject in Romans 8 uh, no, I didn't finish that, did I? They're not seeing me. No, let's just go on. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ Jesus, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. And then verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So verse 18, I consider that the suffering that I'm going through. Why? Because he's keeping his eye on the prize. Because he's keeping his eye on the finish line. They don't compare. It does not, it's not worth comparing with the glory that is be, to be revealed to us. Now, the thing in there is that joy is never mentioned, but I think joy is all over it. I think joy is all in that. I think what Paul is saying is the joy that I have in keeping my eye on Jesus and going for the, for the prize, it's not, the joy keeps me from looking at the circumstances. And I really get this back in Peter when Peter in chapter 4, verse 13 said, he said, instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy with what? When his glory is revealed. That's the same glory that Paul was talking about. Now, Peter is putting in the terms of, hey, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Right? That goes back to what he said, uh, what we saw in Acts, so that you may also rejoice. You will experience that joy. You will rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed and he comes again. It's an amazing, amazing concept. And it's hard for us to cover in 20 minutes. And yet here we are. Um, I want to close here with just some strategies for the battle. Very briefly. Paul summarizes, in my view, the, 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 the strategies, which is a battle of the mind. How do, we, how do we deal with this battle? I think he summarizes it in Philippians chapter 4, 8. And he says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, and if there's anything praiseworthy, 
dwell on these things. All right, so, so he's saying, look, there are things that are true. So let me just break this down. If you're in a situation and you're struggling and you're not feeling the joy, you're not experiencing the joy, or, or there's some circumstance that you're dealing with, Paul says here, whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, all the things that are positive, all the things that are attributes of God, all the things that God does within our lives, then think on those things, dwell on those, those things, meditate on those things. That will make a, cho- a, a change in your life. You will begin to experience joy through these things. And how do we know? Well, Paul was sitting in prison when he said that. Paul was in a, a, a dark, dank prison. And he says, look, I'm practicing what I preach. Here's what I'm preaching. Do these things. Think on these things. Train yourself to think on these things so that you can experience joy. So what I would do, and I just want to give you kind of a list of of seven things that you can think on. There there are more than seven, but we're past time. But some things that, that you should dwell on to help you recapture the truth of the joy that God plants within you. The first thing is to meditate and think on the fact that Jesus has saved you. That's the finish line you're looking at. Jesus has saved you. And here passages, just write them down. At the end, all seven will be there. You can take a screenshot if you want. Romans 5, 6 to 11, and Ephesians 1, 13. Ephesians 1, 13 is where it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's something to hang your hat on. You were sealed, which is to say you can't come unsealed. It's a done deal. I rejoice in knowing that I am saved. Secondly, Jesus has assured your victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil now. Right? So you've got that victory then, but you have the power over the world, the flesh, and the devil in the here and in the now. You have a promise. John 16, 33 says, In this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. Why? I've overcome the world. That is a promise that we have. And with that, we've got an instruction in James chapter 4, verse 7, that says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How amazing is that? How do I, how do I know that's true? How do I know that I can, if I submit myself, I can really resist the devil? Well, we have a provision also in 1 John 4, 4, that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I have an image in my head when I think about that because I think I know that I am called to resist the enemy. I also know that I am very weak and I'm a sinner and I don't have power, but I also have to remind myself that I submit to God. It is he who is in me, or I can picture this with he who is standing behind me that gives me great comfort. So even if I feel like I am not up to the task, even if I know I am not up to the task, I know that he who is with me is watching over me. And I know that if the enemy starts to look back at that, the enemy is going to flee. Not because of little old me, because of great big him. I want you to hold on to that image. I want you to remember greater is he who is in you. Than he that is that's joy inducing right there, man. That is like, like that fills me with joy. When I think about it, I look at that image in that light, it just brings me joy. 
to know that. And, and that's weaponry against the enemy. Number three, Jesus is giving you strength amid the chaos. He's giving you strength through it. So I know that when I resist the enemy, I know that it's hard, but I also know that he is giving me that strength because of him who is within me. Fourthly, oh, I'm, I'm losing my track here. This is why I've told you, I, it's loosely that I'm in control. I'm really not much in control. So Jesus is giving you strength in the chaos. Number four, Jesus turns your endurance into glory. Romans 8, 28, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Fifthly, Jesus is glorified in your joy. Right? So John 15, 8. So in other words, God is glorified when we bear all kinds of fruit, especially joy when there's no explanation otherwise except that God is working. When I can, when I can face a really difficult time with joy, then I look at that and I go, that's God. Glory be to God. And as I look out here across, the, I just I go back to the table. And I'm looking at the Sanders family back there. And I just go, you know what? Everything that we walked with the Sanders through over the last year, man, has been just like God, right? It's like the joy that is still present, even in the midst of very difficult and uncertain times when you kind of go, that's just God. That's just God. And I look around, I see other people who've gone through difficult times, and I know God gets glory in those times. Number six, Jesus is coming again to make all things right. That gives me joy, man. That gives me ammunition against the enemy. And then finally, and I really want you to, to catch this one, Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. Even through the chaos that is around us. Romans chapter one tells me that when I look around and I see chaos in the world, I see sin running rampant. What I, what I tend to do is to go, what is this world coming to? How are we going to, what is going on? It's like everybody's rebelling against God. They're turning against God. It's just going crazy. And then I read chapter one and I, then I have a different perspective and I look and I go, you know what? A lot of this stuff I'm seeing is God in absolute control. It is God's wrath and judgment already being poured out on those who are in rebellion. So when I see a lot of the things happening that I read in Romans 1, that's not things out of God's control. That's God in full control. So no matter what you see, no matter what you're going through, you can go, God's got this. It doesn't look like I think it should. Seems like if God were in control, it would be heaven on earth. It will be heaven on earth. But right now, God is bringing about his plan of redemption from beginning to end. And that involves all of this. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Okay. So we can overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil as we submit to the Holy Spirit's guidance in us. As we understand that joy is ours. As we understand that the enemy he cannot steal our joy. He can redirect us. He can you know, try to make us forget through keeping our mind full of different things. But, but the joy comes from God and we can use that against him. And one of the ways that we even do that is as we conclude the service with communion. Communion is a part of that because as we as the body come together and we share in the meal, we share in the table, the cup, the new covenant, the, the body that was broken, it reminds us of what Jesus did. It's weaponry against joylessness. 
because I can remember what Jesus did. I can remember that it's a done deal. I can remember that I have been welcomed to the table, that I'm a part of that. And so even us gathering in worship, even us taking of the table, even us gathering together in small groups and reminding each other of how good God is and what he has done and challenging in us in joy, right? Reminding each other that joy is not circumstantial. So even when you're going through dark times and they're deep and they're dark, and I get it, we don't want to minimize that. We need to walk with each other through that. But we also need to encourage each other towards the joy that God has got this, that God is in control, that he loves you very, very much. So I want you today to come to the table with these things in mind. I want you to come to the table with great joy that you have been welcomed into the family of God. And and Bio is going to talk a little bit about that in just a second. But I want you to pray with me right now, and then we'll move into a time of communion together. Lord Jesus, um, Boy, joy is a big topic, and, and it's hard sometimes for us to get our minds around this. It's hard for me to get uh, my mind around it, Lord, as I am sometimes overwhelmed by the circumstances or, or people or, or things that I do, whatever, that can just really re- just shake the ground underneath my feet, Lord. But God, help me, help us to settle our souls to be able to think and see rightly and clearly, to know that our circumstances don't lord over us. No matter how hard the enemy wants our circumstances to shape us, help us to keep our eyes locked on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Help us to see and to know that everything Jesus did, he empowers us to be able to do as well. And so that our daily goal is simply to submit to him, to to bow before him, to submit our wills and our desires to him, our fears and our uncertainties to him. Help us, Lord, to experience joy in all times and in all ways, Lord, so that those around us will see a joy that cannot be described any other way but supernatural. And may may they give glory to God through what they see in us. It's in Christ's name. Amen.